Hey friends, it's Maya with a really special episode of the Gaijin Podcast. About a month ago, a friend of mine who works in publishing sent me a DM about a book her company had just released, thinking it would be something I'd be interested in. And oh boy, was she correct. The book is called Brown, White, Black by Nishtha J. Mehra. It was a collection of essays that explored her identity as a queer Indian American woman and the identities of her family in this incredibly vulnerable and earnest way. It took me so long to actually make it through the book because it struck just so many chords with me. I was reading experiences that I went through as a kid articulated in a way that I had never had the vocabulary to vocalize myself. But mostly it was because this was a window into Nishtha's family, a queer American family that celebrated her Indianness and honored her honored their experiences of their black child and waded through what whiteness is with her partner. It was a window into a family that looks like what mine could. Queer, mixed, and above all, loving. And that's something that is so powerful in a way that I can't fully express. Especially as the images of family we see growing up are majority white and or in heterosexual relationships. I was so, so happy to have a chance to read this book. And it just validated so many things for me. And... It was just, I, I can't say enough how incredible it is to see see images of a family that yours could look like and, and just, you know, instead of intellectualizing, oh yeah, like I totally can have a family, um, to actually feel it and to see it. And that visibility is just so, so important. And I was even more thrilled to get to sit down and talk with Nisha on this week's episode. She is truly so wonderful, and through the entire conversation, I was about five seconds away from calling her Mayaka. Oh, no. Um, I've done it now. Hi, Nishtha. If you're listening, I think I accidentally made you my and the Gaijin Project Zekka. Hi. <laughs> um, this conversation was so wonderful. It explores the role Hinduism has played in her connection to identity and family, struggling with both assimilating and standing out, and how her child, Shiv, is this beautiful image of Asian American culture. So, without further ado, this is The Gaijin Podcast with author Nishtha J. Mehra. Nishtha, it is so wonderful to have you on the podcast today. Before we get any deeper into everything, um, something that I always like to ask my guests is to introduce themselves. Um, so would you mind introducing yourself to the listeners uh, at home? Absolutely. So I'm Nishtha. I am first generation, uh, born an only child to two awesome parents. I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee. So I have like an affinity for both um, alu parantas and pork barbecue, and <laughs> I am a high school English teacher and a writer, and my new book is called Brown, White, Black. Uh, I love that because I also love pork so much. I think <laughs> anytime somebody asks me, what's your favorite food, um, I'm always just like, well, I think it's just any variation of pork <laughs> at just some point. In general, yeah. Just pork. <laughs> um, well, I'm so, so excited to get to talk to you today uh, because I read Brown, White, Black uh, after a friend who worked at Picador uh, like sent me a text message and was like, you would probably absolutely love this book. Uh, and she was absolutely correct. Um, I don't think that I have ever interacted with 
a piece of media, whether it be like film or television or a book, nonfiction or fiction, that I felt like I saw myself so clearly, um, which was so overwhelming when I first cracked it open. I was like, I don't know how to deal with any of this. <laughs> it's overwhelming for me in a good way to hear that from you, but it's, it's so gratifying. Thank you for saying that. Um, so I was wondering if you could just uh, describe Brown, White, Black um, a little bit and kind of what uh, drove you to write, you know, what was your impetus to writing it? And then I also have like so many questions after that. Sure. No, I'm excited for questions. Um, so I am partnered with um, a white woman. We've been together for 17 years and um, almost seven years ago, we adopted our child, Shiv, who um, was born male, but now uses his female pronouns. And uh, Shiv is black. And so our family is like at once just a very intimate, boring, like someone has to cook dinner and pancakes on Saturday morning sort of family. But also because of the world that we live in, um, when we walk around in that world, it gets more complicated. And I think a lot of that I took for granted just as we were navigating our experience and it was as Shiv was getting older and as I was paying attention to the world differently as the parent of a black child that I started to think about ways that my perspective was shifting. And then the people in my life started indicating to me, you know, hey, I think you have some things to say here that might be useful or meaningful for others to hear or just reminding me even that like, hey, your experience of the world is pretty different from most of us because I think our own experiences are often invisible to us because we just become accustomed to them. And so as I started to kind of capture some of those stories, I was lucky to have folks who were encouraging me to keep writing them. And so that's sort of how the book was born. Uh, that's amazing. And I think that for me, at least, this is like one of the first times that I have I kind of had a window into a family, um, you know, that my family in the future could look like. And there's something that's so reassuring about that. Um, because when you are not only like an ethnic minority in the United States, but also, you know, you are queer um, in, in you're just like all of these different minorities. It, trying to envision a future like a familial future is so hard mm -hmm. because all of the images we see are mostly um white folks and 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 also most often uh in heterosexual relationships and so absolutely that, like i honestly can't tell you how much that means to me because it was just like intellectually i feel like a lot of times we're like yeah like we can have a family like that's a thing that is possible mm -hmm. um but being able to kind of have a window into it and hear your experiences um, and have that kind of like be more real and less like this intellectual idea um, sure. was really, really, really wonderful. Um, so I could just like keep saying that this entire, <laughs> this entire episode. Um, but I'm, I'm so curious about you, how you, you write in the beginning of the book about growing up in Memphis and, and how it was, you were, you know, in this very black and white society, but a brown person, which I related to a lot because I grew up in um, a very rural area of Northern California that was very, very conservative. Um, so a lot of my experiences uh, kind of were similar to yours and uh, including going to, um, I went to a Catholic school when I was younger and I was really curious um, about how growing up in those spaces, you know, impacted the way that you related with being Indian and with Hinduism um, then and and maybe how it has informed your relationship with those things today? Sure. Yeah, it is super formative. I think for me and anybody, I think your school experience on wherever on the spectrum it is in terms of to positive to negative, right? It's It's so influential. And I was actually just back on campus at my alma mater last week I was doing a reading in Memphis and I got to go back to to school and meet with some students and see some faculty members who are still there who I was fortunate to have when I was there and it really does feel like coming home when I step onto campus so there's there's a deep feeling of real belonging for me and that was real um, at the same time and it's still true right that it's a majority white environment and um, it is a religiously affiliated school which for me was 
honestly, like very positive. I think that was an access point for me. I'm someone who is really attracted to different forms of religion and spirituality. I like to geek out about that stuff. I like learning about other people's beliefs. I majored in religious studies in college. And I think a lot, a large part of that is because my environment growing up was being surrounded by people who believed and observed differently from me. And my parents, you know, were very much encouraging of that. My mom went to Catholic schools in India and she actually taught at some before my parents emigrated. And my dad is from Amritsar, which of course was like the most, one of the most sacred places on the planet, right? Um, For Sikhism. And then also just is a real religious amalgam, right? He grew up with, you know, a Muslim best friend and and Sikh best friends and, and folks who were Jain, right? Who were his friends. And so they were not scared of that environment. Like they were very encouraging of my exploration of it. And so religion really for me was kind of the window of feeling like I had an opportunity to get to know people who were very different from me and to also share about my own sort of perspective or background. You know, looking back for sure, I cringe about certain things that like feel really culturally appropriative to me now that I probably would have handled differently. And I think we all go back and forth, maybe swinging from like the really assimilationist phase of like being 12 and just really wanting to fit in um, to like, for me, it was like at about 14 or 15 and thinking like, I could leverage this Indian thing and be cool, you know, like (laughs) neither of which are super ideal positions, uh, but you know, you're like a kid and you're figuring it out. And I think, um, you know, there was a lot of negotiating for me of like, what does it mean to be Indian and what I want, what do I want that to mean? And so it was never a question for me that that part of my identity was important. I think because it's so tied to my parents and because I've always been really close with my parents. And so that whole first gen thing about honoring my parents and honoring where we came from was just always, that was a default setting. It was like, what is that going to look like for me? Because it can't look the same as it did for them. Um, And I'm still in that conversation, like for sure. Um, I think there's always that tension of even like what you were saying about, you know, being able to envision a family, like the, there's exhilaration in there not being any goalposts really. Right. But then there's also like this terror of like, how do I know if I'm doing it right? Or how do I know, you know? And so when you're sort of feel like you're making it up as you go, like that can be really exciting. And I think I've definitely found places of resonance for me and joy that because I'm not following a script, but then there are also times where I just think like, am I totally screwing this up? And what am I going to pass on to my kid? And is this still authentic? And, you know, you kind of want someone to give you permission, but there's not really anybody to do that. Yeah. That can be scary. Yeah, it's like navigating that space as a third culture kid where you're like honoring both you where you came from, like the society that you grew up with, and then also totally recognizing that who you are and your experiences live in this in-between space. It's like this right. combination, which is, is so weird because it looks uh, it looks like it's different for every person. It looks different for every person. Um, and so like you're saying that <laughs> you're like, wait, okay, uh, wait, what do I do now? Like, how do I interact with this thing now? And that's part of what's so exhilarating for me to have conversations with you or even to go back, like I said, to my alma mater and talk to students who are in a similar position now, right? That we're at least having more conversation about these things. And just the feeling of not feeling so alone in it, right? That like, you're trying to do this work, I'm trying to do this work. Um, That helps it feel, I think, a lot less lonely. And, um, you know, I learn a lot from other folks who are doing this navigating. And I find it really inspiring to watch people like build their lives, right? In a way that feels really authentic to them. Absolutely. So uh, you were talking about how when you were about 14, you started playing into the like, oh, how do I leverage this Indianness as being cool? Um, I, when I was reading your book, you mentioned Bend It Like Beckham, which like, n- triggered is not the right word, but <laughs> it, struck, it struck a very specific memory of mine. Uh, when I was playing AYSO soccer, when Bend It Like Beckham came out, everybody loved it, me included. And I started leveraging the fact that all of a sudden this Indian thing that was so insanely popular 
uh, was me. Like, I mean, I was mm -hmm. Indian. This is my thing. Um, and I did the weird and now looking back on it, very gross thing of memorizing the entire cold open, accents and all, and then proceeding to do the entire opening every single time at uh, AYSO soccer. So it was like, wow. Yeah. And everybody loved it. Everybody wanted me to do it all the time. Um, and when I look back at it now, I'm like, that's, that was, that's very complicated. There's so many things about that that is gross and weird and um, at the same time. But I, I'm curious about wh what it was like for you, like when you were leveraging your um, Indianness and then also doing the balancing act of like um, wanting to stand out, but also like in a cool way so you're not fully outside of the in-group. Um, right. I think for me it looked a lot like what we would now talk about as sort of like this model minority thing, <clears throat> excuse me, and feeling like, okay, I can pull this off. Like I can do both, you know, like I can sort of meet all of the markers and check all the boxes on sort of like, you know, preppy white culture and I can also bring this other thing into play. And I really thought that I was pulling that off for a time, right? Like, um, and I really think it was being like realizing that I was queer that disrupted that whole thing. Like that, that ship <laughs> sailed, you know, like that's over. Um, and I'm really grateful. I mean, you know, obviously that I'm grateful to be who I am authentically, but I'm also grateful that something disrupted that, that trajectory before I went off to college. And, um, sort of lived some life fulfilling someone else's expectations. Um, you know, I think what a, a lot of it, like, for example, my version of your like Bend It Like Beckham thing is my high school yearbook superlative, which was all American ethnic girl. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. And, I, and now I'm just like, oh, really? And like, I'm the one who came up with it. Like, it wasn't even like one of my friends who suggested it. Like, that was all me. And I was like, really proud of it. You know, like, sort of like this idea that I was, you know, doing this really well. And I just also happened to be a brown girl with like some extra flavor or something. I don't know. Um, I think that looking back, um, there were some really authentic points of engagement. And like, so I don't want to you know, paint it with a broad brush. Like there were classmates who really did engage with me authentically and wanted to know and understand and appreciate my culture. And then there were also people who like wanted bindis, you know? Yeah. And so, you know, again, we were, we were teenagers and we were figuring out a lot of stuff, but there were some real, um, meaningful conversations that I got to have. And then there were some really sort of fake kind of places of connection now that I look back and think that was me working hard to fit in, which I think, I mean, I'm a high school teacher, right? Like I see this, you kids use what they have, right? Like they're, we're all leveraging what we feel like we have um, in that, that really difficult time. And so, you know, I happen to have, you know, this background that I thought I could use um, to sort of fit in and. Um, of course the irony is right that like I'm not cool like I was never cool and so like it would have been easier if I had just sort of like given that up like to yeah. begin with um, I might have sort of had a little bit more fun that way but then you know um, coming out was like an automatic like cool point thing in the late 90s early 2000s like it was just kind of edgy enough and like you know what I mean like the yeah, exactly. all of a sudden I was like really like this is all I, I had to kiss a girl like that was that's <laughs> that's what it took this whole time. Like that was easy. Like I should have thought of this years ago. Um, that was a weird sort of experience my senior year of high school to like suddenly be invited to these parties and stuff. And, you know, then of course you also realize that like, maybe it's not actually as great over here as I thought. So it's fine that I, I didn't fully make it into the cool kids group. So. But you're, you're your own cool kid now. <laughs> Because what I, I try to say that to my, that's my like daily affirmation whenever I like trip over something in the middle of a courtyard. I'm like, I'm the cool kid now. Like, shh. Right. I get to decide what that means. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, how do you, what do you think that it, it means? I mean, you, you, your superlative was a all American ethnic girl. Uh, and I was wondering kind of uh, what you think it means to be Asian American or queer Asian American, like to you because I think that that has that's a term that like has changed a lot like the the meanings that we place onto it and the meanings that we take from it 
is like so fluid, but I also feel that now kind of in this new age of Asian American activism, there's a lot of younger folks that are trying to really build off of what, uh, you know, like the activists before us have kind of set out um, to really define what Asian American culture is or queer Asian American culture is. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious about like what you think that that means or how the two inform each other. Yeah, I find it so inspiring to watch the activism that's happening in the younger Asian American community. I remember when um, there was a letter, right, that circulated um, that was designed to have a conversation with sort of older folks about the Black Lives Matter movement, right? So it was this whole collective effort of like, here's how to talk to your parents and grandparents about Black Lives Matter and why solidarity is important and what it means to be an ally. And like, there was this call on Twitter, you know, like who can help us translate this letter into like, you know, 45 languages, right? Um, and people did, like, it was this amazing thing that happened over, like, Google Docs, right? And it was so beautiful to watch the energy behind that and this sense of urgency of um, we don't just want to leave sort of our, this older generation behind or say, like, you know, we're taking over and you're irrelevant, right? But we want to bring them with us. And I think I'm really inspired by that design of activism, of, of not just cutting off and trying to start over. And I, I don't know if there's something particularly unique about that um, for us who are sort of maybe first or second generation or who are immigrant kids, but that idea of trying to bridge. And um, I know for me, as I've become a parent and as I've reflected more on my own experiences, I have realized how much my, my mom, my, my dad's past, but how much my mom is a resource in ways that I did just totally took for granted when I was younger. It was like, oh, right. Like my mom did this like in the seventies, right? Like she yeah. walked into these super white spaces as this professional woman who like nobody took seriously. And she dealt with being exoticized and like she, right? Like she, I can ask her questions, right? Like we can relate on these points. And so I think that that is really um, encouraging for me to watch that work happening. And then when you sort of layer for me, being queer on top of that, right? Like for a long time, I thought I was just like on an island by myself, right? Like I was the only queer brown girl. And it's been so incredible for me, even in just like the last five years, probably. And I'm like 36, right? So it's like, I did a lot of identity work before at this <laughs> point, but like in the last five years to, to see this visibility of, of um, you know, artists and bloggers and um, folks doing, making podcasts and folks writing books and making movies and um, just doing this really powerful work of being fully embodied in their queerness and in their Asian Americanness. And, you know, for so long, I thought those two things would always be in tension with each other and they could never really fully coexist. Um, but I'm seeing a different sort of vision for that now that um, both of these things are true of who I am and they're both um, they can they can hang out together um, yeah. and, and that 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 intersectionality allows me to maybe see things that other folks don't right and have access to certain conversations um and and sort of try to keep us as honest as we can right like I think that's a particular job that maybe we can take on in that slice of intersectionality of our um our identities is just to say like hey don't forget about this and yeah. like Right, like, hey, let's make sure we think about how this, you know, sort of involves this group too, or what the implications are, you know, over here. And I think that that is, um, I'm up, I'm game for that, right? Like, that feels like a, a good <laughs> yeah. job to have, you know, or a role that, that I'm excited about stepping into. Absolutely. Have you ever, have you always identified as Asian American? Because I know for me, I've always felt like there was a separation between being South Asian and then also mm -hmm. Asian. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's, it's honestly only since the past couple years um, that I've seen more Asian spaces be intentionally inclusive of like mm -hmm. the entirety of the continent. Um, but I still like struggle a lot with identifying as Asian American because it feels so ingrained in me that I'm not really Asian American. I'm South Asian. That's interesting. I think I don't necessarily have that same 
history, although I do, you know, I, I don't know that what I kept trying to think about what I think I probably used the term Indian American for a long time and um, sort of felt like place specific and more sort of like honest or accurate. And also just because it like keeps people from asking you like, the, where are you from? And like, where are you really from? Like series of questions. <laughs> yeah. <It's> so delightful. <laughs> um, but it's sort of this to your point about inclusivity, you know, I think that has also been encouraging for me to see folks being intentional about like, okay, if we're going to do this, we want to do this really thoughtfully and we want to be inclusive and, and to also recognize that like there are different conversations that are happening inside of specific groups. And we don't necessarily have certainly a universal experience, mm -hmm. but that there is some shared conversation, like particularly around things like model minority conversations or affirmative action conversations, or just, you know, simply the way that like this, sort of exceptionalism has been used as a wedge, I think particularly between Asian Americans and other American racial minority groups, right? Like that is, I think, a universal experience that many of us now are sort of like calling bullshit on. Like, no, like you're not gonna separate me from these other folks um, who I want to stand in solidarity with. Um, and so I'm gonna question those narratives and I'm gonna sort of d disentangle myself from that whole racial hierarchy. And so, I think for me, that's part of why I use that term um, or why I feel excited about identifying with it because um, it speaks to that broader conversation and that work that we have to do or that we can choose to do. Um, and also, I was just never, like, I never felt Indian enough. Like, that was definitely Oh, a I thing feel that. Me, right? Like, yeah. I didn't watch all of the movies. Like, I don't speak Hindi very well. You know, like, there's all this kind of stuff mm -hmm. that I, where I feel like I don't measure up. So, like, I was often also sometimes hesitant like to identify myself. I still like have these moments of like thinking that like I'm not going to pass some sort of test around other folks who are like, you know, Indian American or who are somehow connected to India. And, you know, like there's this judgment that's going to just come down upon me, um, which is totally self-imposed at this point, right? Like that's 100% me being paranoid. So I think also that's part of why I didn't always jump into the like South Asian camp because I was just like, I don't fit in. Like, I'm not like these other girls who, you know, can sort of do all of these good Indian girl things that I'm like, eh, I don't know, you know. So yeah. it was probably a protective mechanism too. <laughs> I also, I, <laughs> for, I'm also a like quote unquote bad Indian because I don't know Hindi at all. I can like, kind of get away with understanding what people are saying just based off of their like intonation and like facial cues um and it's an expressive language thankfully so i know yeah. my grandmother on my dad's side only speaks telugu and doesn't speak english at all which is kind of a nightmare when it comes to phone calls with her because it'll be yeah. like hi hi <laughs> just like a lot of dead space um, that's another point of resonance are like the awkward trans Atlantic phone calls yep. of your youth, right? Of just like, ah, don't make me talk on the phone, but like, I know I'm supposed to, but it's so yep. uncomfortable and I don't know what to say. Anyway, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, no. And it's also that thing where it's like, I don't think that you can talk to anyone in India without yelling over the phone. Like the connection oh, is sure. like, the connection is 100% fine, but still <laughs> need to like talk at a full scream every single time. Yeah, that's just, that's part of how it works. For sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I totally, I totally resonate with that because, um, you know, I, I also felt like I, I didn't belong in these, like even this past weekend, I was with another like um, Indian friend who started saying that so he made a joke in Hindi and I kind of just laughed along pretending like I knew just what happened, but mm. like having no connection to that. And so it's been really interesting to kind of, I'm still coming to terms with the fact that like it is totally fine to be like very Americanized and that has no impact on like my, you know, like whether I am good enough of an Indian. Um, sure. But I'm wondering, you know, a lot of that for me at least um, has been kind of like the perceptions of what Indians or what Asians, especially Asian femmes should be in like Western spaces. And I was curious if like, how or if those you know kind of like outside assumptions placed onto us um like have influenced you or or like the way that you walk through life 
Sure. I think I've spent a lot of time throwing that stuff off. (laughs) I I felt a lot of pressure, you know, around attractiveness and around a certain kind of attractiveness related to being um, a brown girl. And I think um, even before I knew that I was queer, like I definitely had a sense of resistance to that. I I, my mom and I have this joke um, from when I was younger, right? That like smart is good, but smart and pretty is better, <laughs> which is sort of like the under, like it's maybe never spoken, but like everybody knows that that is, you know, sort of how you're being judged as a, you know, an Indian American girl. And, and there's always this question of like marriageability too, right? Like as much as my parents and their friends were like re- really progressive for the time and place, right? Like it was not even a question of like, are we going to get married? Right. It was like when we're getting going to get married. Right. And, and so that was always like lurking in the background. And I really resented that. And my dad would make jokes a lot about my hair because he really wanted me to grow it long. And I was just like, I'm not your like Bollywood heroine princess or whatever. Um, and so I cut my hair short in high school the first time as a real sort of defiance piece for me and it's sort of a like I'm not even gonna try to measure up to these standards because I know that I can't so I'm just gonna choose something totally different (laughs) and that continued for a while or maybe probably still continues I um, had short hair and you know I knew my dad would have preferred me to have long hair and it was sort of this point of tension and then I came out and then it seemed like, you know, my hair was inherently connected to my sexuality, even though in my mind they weren't necessarily connected. Um, and then my dad died. And then so mourning for him meant growing out my hair long and which is like the inverse of what most people do culturally like to shave hair after in grief. And then more recently I have cut my hair off and I keep it super short partly because I'm like really vain and I'm trying to resist that vanity and my own attachment to being attractive and being related to as attractive and getting certain things out of being sort of conventionally feminine and attractive. So I'm still, that's still very much an open question for me and still very much something that I think about a lot and how sort of there's this one sort of ideal for quote unquote ideal for, for Indian American women, right? Like all women deal with unreasonable beauty standards, of course. Um, And it's not like white women have a ton of options in terms of like what sort of conventionally attractive boxes they can pick, but there's at least more than one box. Right. And I feel like for Indian women, you know, there's, there is, there's one, but one box. Right. And if you don't fit into it, right. Like then I don't, you know, you're kind of screwed. And so, that is something I'm still, I think, trying to be honest about with myself. Um, I feel like so much of that from myself has been impacted by like what I see. I mean, especially in like Bollywood, it's like mm-hmm. Indian women are just like you were saying, one specific thing. Um, mm-hmm. And then like in the West, you know, like we have had no Indian women until very, very recently. Um, and yet they're still, you know, part you know like upholding kind of like heteronormative ideals of like what exactly femininity is um, absolutely and i mean i love that mindy kaling shows that you know is more body you know is not like a very very petite uh you know dancing through the streets kind of like deepika padukone or something but right. um which definitely like is a step but Anyways, all of that to say, um, I was just wondering uh, if you ever saw, you know, like if there was a piece of media for you that like you either completely saw yourself in or parts of yourself in, um, you know, something that tried to maybe give like one uh, ounce of representation uh, to thwart that, you know, feeling of loneliness that can sometimes happen. It's it's definitely a collage, right? Of sort of like, things that do a little bit here and there. And I, you know, I really wasn't, it wasn't until I was pretty much in college that anything started to show up where I was like, oh, this, this might sort of resonate. And really for me, it was, it was first through the lens of, of queer representation, which was mostly white, right? 
um, or almost exclusively white. Um, but there were sort of pockets here and there of, you know, at least representation of what it felt like to, to come out or to sort of be bucking some of those expectations of femininity or dealing with a family that wasn't, you know, as supportive as you would like them to be. And, you know, it wasn't until I think pretty recently that things started to happen where there were pieces of films, even just to have, you know, like, even for me, like to go see Black Panther, like that's not a movie that was made for me, right? That representation is not mine, but I'm like, there's like one white person in this movie, like this is amazing, you know? And, um, you know, same thing with Crazy Rich Asians, right? Like that's not my culture per se, but just so beautiful to be steeped in something that's not like cis American whiteness. And so uh, those are the things that have been, I think, really impactful for me. And also watching how impactful they are for my students and um, as a parent, right? To see where representation, it really doesn't even take that much at this point, right? Because we still have so far to go. Mm -hmm. um, that even just the littlest things can make such a huge difference um, in terms of being able to visualize yourself into a particular story or, or to just know that your story is worth telling and spending a mil millions of dollars yeah. on, you know? And I think that's often what's missed in the conversation about representation, that it's not just about, okay, I see someone who looks like me, right? It's like, I see that a story like mine was you know, vetted and edited and, you know, given a book cover or given a budget or, and, you know, given a, a movie poster and all, you know, all of the pieces that go with that, that speak, that do so much communicating, right? Beyond just, here's a person who looks something like me. It's, it's so much more than that, right? Yeah. It's so much deeper. Yeah. That like, that feeling of this isn't just my story, but this is my story and it is clearly worthy to be told. Um, just like kind of seeing that on the screen, I think is so, so powerful. Um, Absolutely. You mentioned- Actually, I do have oh, one. Yeah. I don't know. This is, is so goofy, but like, have you seen the movie Nina's Heavenly Delights? Yes. Have okay, I seen so, it? It sounds like super familiar. I feel like I have. So it doesn't totally match, right? Like they're, it's, they're in Scotland. She's Scottish and like, you know, it's kind of a goofy movie, but like, She's lost her dad. Her family has this restaurant. She comes home. She's queer. She's not out. There's this like cute white girl naturally, right? Like, and, and so, you know, it's like a goofy movie. Like, let's be really clear. But it was so, I, we, my partner Jill and I watched it not that long ago. My audiobook producer recommended it to me. And I was like, where was this movie when I was 17? You know, like I totally cried. And Jill was like, really, honey? Because this movie is kind of, and I was like, I know, but it's just so, you know, it was like, really, it doesn't matter, right? Like yeah. how old you are. I think it's so affirming to see any piece of that. And also just to see, I think too, right? Like just the types of representation. And I see this with Shiv, right? That like, okay, yes, it's great that there are like a ton of books about the civil rights movement, right? And that there are a ton of books about, Black history, like those are super important. Don't get me wrong. And like my kid just wants to see a book with like black people like going to the beach and like yeah. doing normal things. Do you know like <laughs> yeah. it? Right? Like there's so many levels at which like it is important. I think to have that. Like here's a story where like people are like not freaking out about the fact that this brown girl is queer and like her family's pretty accepting and you're just like, Oh, thank God. You know, yeah. like, um, those things make such a big difference. Even when they're just kind of goofy, it, it, you know, it really is very affirming. Anyway, if you haven't watched okay. it, watch it. You may, may deserve a rewatch. Yeah. Um, I am all about rewatching. Um, no, I, I love that you said that because like every movie about representation or every TV show that has like, diverse representation in it doesn't need to be prestige or like in the running for like a dramatic oscar nomination right. it's like i just like, like i just want to see a bad happen. white people stuff yeah. out there like can't can't we have our trashy rom-coms like i, yeah, I just, exactly. just want a rom-com you know yeah i want something um, like so vapid and just really really stupid that i can just be like yeah like we can be stupid too like just let us exist <laughs> as people for yeah. sure and I, I i was having a great conversation with um janelle levy who i did an interview with for electric lit and she does a lot of um she watches a lot of tv um for her writing and i was asking her her thoughts about sort of queer representation in t 
TV today because you know her sort of argument was that TV is way ahead of movies at this point, which I think is right in terms of sort of diverse representation. And she was saying that she's been so encouraged to see just that there are like queer characters who get to be queer, but it's not the focal point of their storyline, right? Like they're not, it's not being ignored that they're queer. It's not like, oh, they just happen to be like, no, there are real things that impact their life differently than the straight characters. But it's also not like the only time you see them is when they're like dealing with their struggle, you know, like they're also getting to do, you know, normal life stuff. So you mentioned that um, a lot of the representation early on for you that you gravitated towards was like more queer representation and that like absolutely in the early aughts that was very white (laughs) and white centric. And this is something that like I have been thinking about a lot more recently in my own life is how kind of like that presentation has made me kind of uphold queer whiteness as kind of like the pinnacle of like attractiveness or like um, desirability. Uh, How, how did you kind of like work through that when that was, I mean, like now there's so much more that I can dive into Um, and even when I was like younger and kind of like dealing with my own, um, sexuality and stuff, there still was definitely a sizable amount of like POC representation too. Um, but I was wondering like how that has impacted you as someone who is currently trying to navigate that herself. It was so femme too, right? Like it was so white and it was like, you know, conventionally pretty skinny women, um, which, you know, intersected with like the, just the beauty standards of that time period too, right? Like where, you know, everybody looked like they were on heroin and you know, whatever. <laughs> so, um, all of that to say, I think that a lot of that, and this is going to sound so cheesy, but um, like it was really relationships with people that pushed me past my assumptions about those things or really pushed me to question those things, right? Um both the the woman that I first dated in high school, right? Like she, she was not, you know, she was more butch, right? And like not sort of, we, we did not look like one of those movies, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, but I, right, like that was a really powerful relationship for me, right? Like I fell in love with someone and it was wonderful and, you know, like also awful and terrible and all the things. <laughs> um, but right, like that, I think for me, uh, relationships are a place that often push me past my default assumptions. And so, you know, that relationship with my high school girlfriend and then meeting and falling in love with Jill, who, um, you know, I felt fine saying this because she was saying this the other day to someone, right? Like she's the more sort of traditional, like she was, you know, wears the cargo shorts and like goes to Home Depot, right? And so, but like I, there was no question about falling in love with her. Like that just happened, you know? And like, so then my ideas and my sort of um, judgments had to catch up, right? Like here's a person who I love deeply, but then there's like this part of me that's sort of ashamed to take her home because she doesn't look like, you know, sort of this traditionally femme, like acceptable lesbian. And that was really, it's really hard to confront that stuff, right? Like it's not pleasant to think about these parts of yourself um, that you don't like. but that I had to be honest with myself about that because it, I wanted to honor her and, and honor our relationship. And so it just, it took some time, right? And some digging and some thinking about what are the factors that contributed to that? Like, why is it that I feel this way? Or where, where did these ideas or images come from? And, you know, it's not like it's a, it happens overnight or that there's even like a full and complete sort of overhaul. But I think, you know, it's a practice, right? Like you, you catch yourself at it and you, you call it what it is, you identify it and you say like, okay, I'm, I'm putting that aside and I'm going to choose this other thing. And I think it just, you do that over and over again. Right. And yeah. it's just the work. Yeah. It's just the work. Um, the last episode that we did on the Gaijin podcast was all about fan culture and how it kind of functions differently amongst marginalized groups who don't always see themselves in media. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the things that we were talking about is how it's really interesting. I mean, it's definitely by virtue of the fact that there is a lack of overall queer representation, but that it's really interesting to see a lot of POC fandoms, like queer fandoms, uphold uh, white femme pairings uh, 
over, you know, um, you know, POC, pair, you know, queer POC pairings that are also on TV. Um, and, and that was something really interesting to, to talk about because I think it speaks to so much of what you mentioned. Like, it, it's an ugly part of us that we're socialized to just gravitate towards to, mm -hmm. that it's hard to just be like, oh, that's gross, but like, let's keep talking about it. Like, let's keep confronting it. Absolutely. And I think it's the talking that, I, you know, I don't think there are easy lines to draw in the sand. And I'm not suggesting like people have to, you know, give up all of their beloved things, right? Like yeah. there's, there's always something probably true that draws us to something. And then there may be lots of other layers on top of that. But it's the talking about it, I think that is really important. And you know, that's where, again, people in my life who are willing to call me out on stuff like that, right? Or, or even just to ask like good questions, right? Like, mm -hmm. Tell me more about that, you know? Like, what's yeah. that about? Or, you know, um, because it's often, right, hard to do that for ourselves. Or just, it, it hard, it's painful, like you said, right? Like, it's not, it's not super fun work, but I do think it's, it's really important work. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so I'm curious because you keep, I'm, well, Sorry, English just escaped me for a moment. <laughs> no um, but uh, so you named your your child Shiv, and and that's such a like an Indian name, like a Hindu name. And I, I it feels when I read kind of like that you had named uh, her Shiv, um, it felt like such this amazing assertion of Asian American culture that for this child who isn't quote unquote Asian, but is like coming from a part Asian household is kind of reveling in this very, very powerful and very Hindu name. Um, what was it like choosing that? And how does Shiv relate to it? Or does she at all at this point? Sure. No, she, she does. And I think choosing it was just felt very serendipitous to us as a family. Like it was one of those things that sort of fell into place. Um, it's not very like glamorous, right? Cause like Jill's literally like Googling, you know, Indian names online and I'm on the phone with my mom and, um, you know, they both suggested Shiv at the same, almost at the same time in this sort of like weird movie moment. And it just, it just felt perfect. And, you know, you sometimes you just like, you got to go with your, your instinct. And, you know, I love the name for lots of reasons. Um, my parents really struggled to conceive. And um, so sh my mom, you know, connected with Shiva, right? Like, and, and prayed and fasted um, in order to, to hopefully have a child of her own. And um, Shiva for me has always been really powerful and resonant because of all of the contradictions that he embodies, right? Like he's this warrior and he's also this yogi and he's um, a dancer and a fighter and he's the god of creation and destruction right and so um to me right and i think this is another thing that i didn't really recognize until i was older like how much of my default setting is super western right like my way of thinking about time and my way of thinking about what's good versus what's you know sort of bad and and you know shiva is so eastern right like in some traditional sense of like we're gonna hold all these things together and it doesn't seem like they make sense and it doesn't seem like they go together right but hinduism does such a powerful job i think of asserting that like all of these things are a part of what it means to live a full life right like you don't get to have creation without some destruction and you don't you know sometimes you fight and sometimes you sit and meditate and right like that that tension and holding it inside of one container. So little did we know that it was actually like the perfect name for this child who is full of contradictions and joy. And like, we like to say that Shiv sort of lives life at like volume setting 11, right? Like either she's <laughs> asleep or she's at an 11. There is no in between. And so like, this is a powerful name for like a powerful personality. And in terms of how Shiv relates to it, I think, you know, one thing that's been really, and again, like she gets to choose, right? Like that's the thing, you know, like we love this name and it means something to us, but, you know, obviously knowing that like at some point that might, she might hate her name or like, you know, so every kid goes through a thing with their name, but um, she's always had a strong connection to it. And and when she chose to to use female pronouns, right, she didn't want to change her name, right? She, she felt very attached to being called Shiv and, um, you know, luckily again, like it's, there's that ambiguity and fluidity with Shiva that like it kind of works. Um, and, you know, she loves like if we're somewhere and she sees 
you know, like we're at a museum and she sees like a statue of Shiv or like she, she's like that, you know, that's Shiva, that's my namesake. Like she has this really powerful sense of claiming that, um, which I think is really amazing given sort of what you said, right? She's this, this black child, you know, with, growing up with an Asian parent and a, and a grandmother, my mom is very much a part of Shiv's life. And so, you know, Shiv has this cultural richness that for her, like, makes total sense, right? Like, it's not weird to her. Um, this is part of her her life experience. And these, you know, Hindu stories that we read and the holidays that we celebrate, like, those are very much things to which she's attached. And so, you know, it'll be interesting and fun to watch and see how her own identity and, and sort of cultural navigation, she's got a lot even more than I did, right, to navigate, <laughs> like, God bless. Um, but I think, you know, I'm hoping that we can, you know, give her tools to use to navigate that and to give her the freedom to sort of say, like, look, I know what it's like to do this. You don't have to do it a certain way for me. Like, I want you to do it in a way that's authentic for you. I love that. Um, with the Gaijin Project, we are doing this series called Disorient, and it's based in, um, it's a series of conversations across different mediums, but it's truly based in this idea of trying to reclaim what Asianness is on our own terms. So kind of outside of that Western gaze. And I feel like Shiv is like this perfect example, you know, like is kind of looking at Asianness and Indianness on her own terms and through your lens and your mother's lens, which is it, I, that adds so much richness to an understanding of that, you know, like that culture that's kind of almost outside of what the what, that colonial gaze or that Western gaze of Absolutely. Like what India should be or what Hinduism is at any point. So I, I think that's just honestly very wonderful. Um, I, the way that you do relate Shiv's kind of uh, relationship to her gender um, and, and, you know, how she is navigating that and, and kind of developing her identity um, to kind of Hindu deities and like the way that in Hinduism, everybody is just very, very fluid and it just in their incarnations are just kind of whatever they want them to be almost. Um, that's something that I have really embraced and loved um, kind of the older that I've become over like the past few years, struggling with my queerness and Indianness. Um, and, and I've really kind of gotten to the point where Hinduism is very queer. And like I, I <laughs> revel in the fact that it is very, very queer. Um, I was wondering if that was something that you always noticed at some point or uh, kind of something that you grew into uh, noticing or appreciating? Definitely something that I grew into. Certainly being a religious studies major in college was an amazing opportunity to sort of examine my religion from a scholarly perspective, which was really freeing for me, I think, um, to not feel so much pressure, right? Like, but to really sort of just get to dive into it because like scholarship and learning are some, like that's a place where I feel really comfortable. And so it was like, okay, here's an ac another access point for me. And it, it was, I think, at that time that I started to, to think about, right, like how different sort of the values are that are being projected, right, like inside of some of these narratives or stories or like, you know, what can you do with this text? Like if you talk like in, you know, queer theory, like what it means to queer a text, right? You don't have to do a lot with a lot of these stories, like you said, like, right, like there's a lot going on there. And, you know, there's also a lot of problematic stuff, like, right, just like there is in all religious texts. But even I think some of the things that I noticed were that certainly the gender fluidity and the fact that there just was a container for that and an understanding for that already. Um, and then also just the, um, there's a lot of male affection, right, in yeah. a lot of these stories, right? Like really beautiful, like, like I think about like Hanuman's devotion, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think about, um, you know, like there's a lot of like really powerful brotherly relationships or relationships mm -hmm. between folks who are fighting together. And, and there's, a, you know, there's not some sort of, there is this like sort of like masculine warrior code, but then there, there, it's not contradictory to put that right alongside of like these really tender um, sort of beautiful declarations of love and affection for other men, which I just think is 
right? Like so rare in a Western context, right? Or so exceptional um, that that was one of the things I sort of noticed, right? That again, just sort of has you start to think, right? Like, okay, the default way that I've been exposed to is not the only way or not the only understanding for this. So as I've gotten older, I think, right, this is the thing about a tradition that's, you know, many thousands of years older, right? There's a lot to dig into. And so there's always some place that I, I can go and try to create and find meaning for myself. And that to me is a huge gift. And um, I'm, you know, that is, that's a piece of identity that's always felt consistent for me, my Hinduism. It's maybe um, that and like identifying as female are like the two things that like I can count, you know, on just that long stretch. And so it's really comforting to have that familiarity and then also to watch how it, it change changes. Right. And what that looks like um, is very dynamic. I, I've always, I, in the same way, my identifying as female and my Hinduism, when I think about my identities are the two things that are like uh, a through fair for me, thoroughfare, mm -hmm. like I'm a road. Um, <laughs> uh, it's a journey, you know, a we, there's a metaphor somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, you're so right. Like being able to just be like, oh, okay, there's, there's a lot here. Like there's this like ancient, you know, tradition and text and stuff that that's so different from like the western gaze that when you start to dig into it they're like different you know like you you get to find new things that resonate with you like i always think about krishna's antics and how he's just kind of like a little shit sometimes but is also like totally. very queer um you know like and there's that kind of um embracing of masculinity and femininity at the same time but it's just not in contradiction to anything it's just there um which it feels just so freeing uh because i know at times you know especially with western perceptions of asian cultures i've always felt that like queerness is constantly at odds with like my asianness or my mm -hmm. indianness and like to be able to, you know, go back to the Ramayana and, and, and see, you know, like this queerness of masculine energy um, or to read the stories about Krishna or just to see the gods just reincarnate as like whatever they please um, felt so freeing in that. It was like, oh, like I don't have to subscribe to what the West thinks of me. I can just kind of go to the, the source material and, and make it my own, embrace it in my own way. Absolutely. Um, so I wanted to thank you so much for doing this. Um, I have one last question for you, which is a really okay. fun one. It's either fun or really hard. I have gotten both, <laughs> uh -oh. both responses to this. Uh, but the last question that I like to ask my guests um, is to shout out a Bayesian of the week. So that would be any Asian person um, that inspires you, somebody that you're just like lightly Instagram stalking or, you know, watching on TV. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think that one is pretty easy for me right now because I have like a huge writer crush on Mira Jacob, whose new memoir, graphic memoir just came out. Um, she's just really cool. Um, one, she's totally pulling off that cool Indian girl thing. And she's also just writing in some super brave and important territory um, as the parent of a mixed race child and thinking about, you know, and telling the truth, right, about the complications um, of, of doing that work and, you know, being part of a, a mixed race family and having, you know, in-laws who don't always get where she's coming from. And, you know, a lot of times writers get asked right we get asked sort of like why put your family on display and like how do you think about the ethics of that which are really valuable questions like no doubt like you know jill and i have talked a lot we've talked to shiv right like it's not that we just like willy-nilly jumped into this whole family memoir thing and right like a reaction from someone like you or one of my students right or even just a reader who emails me right that like this is the first time there's been any sort of representation that rings true for me, right? Like that makes all of the trickiness so worth it. And I think, you know, I don't know necessarily like that Mira Jacob would agree with that or that that's where she's coming from, but I just see the bravery of her 
um, putting these conversations out there and telling the truth about her own experience and then doing it in this such a cool storytelling way, right? Like as a teacher, I love thinking about graphic memoir and representation and even how, again, like queering spaces or, you know, what does it mean to arrange a story on a page and, um, and to see aunties on a page, right? Like it's so, it's just so amazing. And, and the audience that she's bringing those things to is great. And I just, anyway, I just think she's super awesome. So that's my vision of the week. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) I'm instantly going to get that, that memoir. I, I love graphic novels as well. So that makes me really excited. Um, well, again, thank you so much for doing this, Nishtha. It was honestly such a joy talking to you, reading your book, just knowing that like you are out there being visible is such an existing. I know that's like a weird thing to say, but no, that's lovely. Thank you. It it definitely has like meant a lot to me. And so I like cannot thank you enough. to like for you to sit down and to bring this conversation of my weird ramblings <laughs> to the rest of the of our listeners. <laughs> Thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun and I love what you're up to and I'm just super fan. So it's great to be a part of it. I will have to send you one of our disorient shirts. Um, Ooh, yay, so new t-shirts. I'll send, I'll send some swag over because we, oh. you need some swag. <laughs> I will take the swag. No shame in that. I will take um, the swag. And uh, last thing before we go, um, is there anywhere where people can uh, follow you and kind of see what you're up to, gently stalk um, in respectfully and consentful ways? (laughs) I appreciate the disclaimers. Yes, I am on both Twitter and Instagram as at Nishta J. Mara. And um, my website is also nishtajmara.com. So um, yeah, I love to meet new people on the internet. It's one of the best things about at this point it maybe is like the best thing about the internet is the cool new people you get to meet because a lot of the rest of it feels like a trash fire but um the cool new people so far at this point are still outweighing the the trash so i'll take it cool new people to the front (laughs) all right thank you so much nishtha um and i will speak to you soon hopefully yeah i would love that isn't nishtha just so wonderful See, now you get why I want her to be my Akka. Um, If you want to follow Nishtha and and check out all the cool events and things that she's doing, you can follow her on Twitter at Nishtha J. Mehra. And also on Instagram at Nishtha J. Mehra. Um, She's got that continuity of handles that unfortunately we don't have, so hashtag Jalish. Um, And you can also check out her website, which is NishthaJMehra.com. And go get that book. It's called Brown, White, Black, and I I have tried recording this outro so many times just singing the praises of Brown, White, Black, and each time I just can't get it right. Like, I can't fully express how powerful and how, how wonderful this book is um, and how meaningful it is to just to have this peek into a family that mine could look like, you know, that a queer... Asian American family, a queer American family could look like. Um, and that's that visibility, that representation uh, is just, th- that's never going to stop being powerful. So wherever books are sold, um, go grab a copy, download a copy from Amazon or uh, iBooks. Um, not really sure how technology works, but go, go read this book. It is, it is kind of continuing our establishment of what the new new American Asian American culture is and and that's something to be celebrated and embraced and upheld um and I guess last things last uh (laughs) if you want to keep up with all the stuff that the Gaijin project project is doing uh you can follow us on Instagram at the Gaijin project uh and then on Twitter at Gaijin project and always hashtag along with hashtag the Gaijin podcast. Um, and we're going to have a lot of cool stuff happening in the next week. We're dropping our enamel pins on Monday. We're going to be at Clexicon with um, the wonderful panel of CB Lee, Nicole Espinoza, Chantal Tui, and Andrea Walter, which is going to be an absolute blast. Um, and, and just more more cool things along the way, more cool conversations with cool people, um, and just continuing to, to be visible, to be proud, and, and 
have have these conversations exploring the queer Asian experience. Um, well, until next time, um, I'll, I'll catch you guys. I'll catch you guys later. Bye.